So when Marie and Sniper Jake Wood arrived home in the States after two brutal tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, he really struggled to leave the war behind him. And 10 years after returning home, Jake's unit had lost more men to suicide than to enemy hands overseas. And he watched in horror as his best friend and fellow Marine plunged into depression upon returning, stripped of a sense of purpose and community and even identity. And despite Jake's attempts to intervene, his friend died by suicide alone. And really reeling, Jake remembered how one of the only things that had given his friend a measure of hope was joining him in Haiti on this ragtag mission to save lives immediately following the 2010 earthquake. And it turns out that their military training had rendered them unusually effective in these high-stakes situations. And Jake wondered if there was a way to help communities in crisis, often in the wake of these profound disruptions and natural disasters, while also providing a new mission to veterans. With that, he built on the early missions to co-found the now-iconic Team Rubicon, a disaster relief organization with over 140,000 volunteers that drop into locations around the world to battle everything from hurricanes to tornadoes, wildfires, pandemics, and civil wars, while reconnecting with this sense of purpose along the way. And in Jake's inspiring memoir, Once a Warrior, he recounts this extraordinary journey. In our conversation today, we drop into some of the really powerful and transformative moments along the way. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Right now you're hanging out in LA. Um, it sounds like you actually kind of grew up bouncing around a couple of different places, Texas, Nebraska, ending up in Bettendorf, Iowa, which by the way, if you Google Bettendorf, Iowa, it's like the MMA breeding ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there? <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually so random. I, I kind of forgot about that. Um, a guy named Pat Militich was a really early UFC guy and a pretty famous and well-known University of Iowa wrestler. And he started a training camp right there. And boy, I'm forgetting all the names of the guys that came through. But yeah, I mean, all the champs you trained there, all of them back in the early days of the UFC. Yeah, it was crazy. I was I was sort of like doing a little bit of background. And I'm like, okay, so it's a relatively small town. You know, like, And yet there's this list of MMA UFC champions. I'm like, What's in the water there? Yeah, and, and I always told people, don't pick a bar fight. Yeah, don't pick a fight at a bar in Bettendorf. You you don't know who you're going to be squaring off against. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, so you end up growing up there, but it also sounds like you had um you had a, a year or two that was pretty formative in your early days. Um, it sounds like your family was bouncing around, and you were in Austria. You dropped into Austria for a short yeah. amount of time, but you had some experiences there that, that really sort of like there's a lot of foreshadowing in it, I guess. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I spent uh, some time in the book talking about that, which was actually kind of interesting because in the writing process, my editor kept trying to jettison it uh, to the, the cutting room floor. But yeah, I spent two years in Austria from 1989 to 1991. And I was a young boy. I think we, I was six years old when we moved there, maybe eight when I left, went to an all German speaking school, just a really fascinating experience. And amidst all of the really immersive cultural experiences that we had, one that really stood out and that I, I wrote about was this experience at uh, a one weekend going to Mauthausen, which had been a concentration camp in the Nazi regime in Northern Austria. And it was just a really somber day. I mean, I remember the day itself was just so dreary. It was like foggy and wet and miserable and we were cold. And of course, my sisters and I are sitting there kind of kicking rocks. You know, what, what are we doing here, dad? You know, why, why are you you know, why can't we just go to, you know, the Hofbrau house or something fun? And it, it was a really eye-opening experience. I think I, for the first time, really saw just how evil people could be. Uh, you know, it was pretty unvarnished. You could sit there, you could see the ovens, you could see the gallows, you could see the the photos and the exhibits of, of these uh, mostly Jews who had suffered there. And it was just really eye-opening for me. And it also was enlightening because you know Mauthausen had been liberated by Patton's army near the end of the war, and many people had of course already perished, but you know a handful of people were rescued and that just really struck me uh, in in seeing of course my my father's emotion looking at it my my grandfather, his dad, had served in Europe during the war not in not in a combat role, but you know nonetheless he was a part of the the, the effort. And I could see just how proud he was. And it was just a moment where I, I thought to myself, that's the type of person that I want to be. And it was just something that always really stuck with me. Yeah, it's so interesting that that moment, you know, decades later is, is still with you. And it sounds like it's still with you in a fairly vivid way. You know, like there's something that was centering visceral that really imprinted it in your memory where it just never left where you know like how many other things happened to you when you were six, seven, eight that you know, you have zero recollection of. Yeah, I, I, I I agree. I think that it was a moment that provided me perspective uh, for the world that not a lot of kids my age were receiving at that point in time. And as I think about having two young daughters now leading what's probably going to amount to a pretty sheltered life here in Los Angeles, California, I, I constantly think to myself, how can I expose them to moments and experiences that provide them that level of compassion and perspective that makes them a better human being and citizen in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's such a delicate balance, right, as a, as a parent, because we really want our kids to understand the the quality of, of relationships in the planet and what's going on around them and understand that there are things that are incredible and also there are things that are really scary, but in, in a way where you don't feel as a, as a young child paralyzed and um, unable to make sense of it or, or do anything with whatever understanding you have with it. I think a lot of people have actually been dropped into that this year in a lot of different ways from, you know, issues of privilege, economic disparity, inequity with medicine, uh, issues of race. I think a lot of parents are really grappling with how do we introduce kids, especially young kids, to the truth of what's going on in a way that really allows them to understand it and also understand their role in it yeah. you know, or their, their role in it as they emerge, you know, out of childhood, especially. Yeah, I, I think, well, let me preface what I'm about to say by uh, acknowledging that I'm not a psychologist, uh, a child psychologist for sure. I think we should probably give kids more credit for being t able to process and understand some of these complex issues. And if they don't understand them or can't process them necessarily out of the gate, we should give them the time and space to figure it out. And, and I, think it's, I think that exposure is really important. I'm sure there are all sorts of listeners uh, tuning in right now who are hearing me saying that and uh, uh, slapping their foreheads, but that's certainly the perspective that I have. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, um, recently sat down with uh, somebody on the show, Rini Jane, who deals specifically with a lot of young kids, and she was actually sharing how one of the biggest misses is that kids actually do understand and they're capable of understanding and, and integrating so much more than we give them credit for at a much younger age. Um, so you returned from there to Iowa. I'm curious, and you know, again, this is a young age for you, but I'm curious if there's sort of like a culture shock that happens um, when you drop back into, uh, you know, like a relatively small town in the middle of the USA. Well, actually, it was it was coming back from Europe. Our first stop was actually in a place called Danville, Illinois, okay. a struggling town near the Indiana border, and 
I don't, I mean, I think there was maybe some culture shock, you know, Central Europe, where we were growing up, small town in Central Europe, maybe 5,000 people, not a whole lot of material things, you know, you'd go to the supermarket, the shelves were relatively bare, the options weren't, you know, extensive. And in coming back, you know, I think that it was a little taken aback, but it's not like I came back to, you know, big city, Chicago, or you know, any of those other New York City type options. I think what what surprised me the most was just like some of the pop culture stuff. You know, I really had no access to any of that. And all of a sudden I come back and my my cousins are obsessed with vanilla ice and you kids on the block and Teenage Mutant Turtles are taking the world by storm. And I have no idea what this stuff is. I mean, I had this one like puppet British cat that was <laughs> would make its way on TV every once in a while. It was like my only form of entertainment in Austria. And uh, so I think that was probably the thing that caught me most off guard. Yeah, that's too funny. It sounds like, I mean, athletic sports is really your jam. You know, from a pretty young age, I know you come up, you get really involved in football. You become a pretty big guy also. And you end up in um, University of Wisconsin playing for four years. I guess it sounds like in the back of your mind for a solid chunk of those, there was a, an aspiration to see if you could actually go pro. Well, this is certainly the case. I, you know, I was a, a pretty highly recruited offensive lineman coming out of high school. You know, this was right at the beginning of the the whole internet recruiting phenomena that has developed now. There's a whole industry around these high school athletes, which is pretty sickening. But you know, I was a top 25 recruit in my position net nationwide, and I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin, which for my position, that is like the factory for sending guys to the NFL. If you want to go play NFL, you know, offensive line in the NFL, you go to the University of Wisconsin. They, they're sending first round draft picks every year. And so to get a full ride offer there, it all just almost seemed like my, you know, my destiny was preordained. And I got on campus and, you know, maybe held my own for a couple of days until the varsity showed up. And the moment that varsity team showed up, they had a, an all-American defensive tackle named Wendell Bryant. And I just remember that guy just physically abusing me for you know the f whole first week until he ripped my shoulder out of its socket and basically ruined my, my first season. But I, I maintained hope for a couple of years. And a couple of years later, uh, the, the school recruited a, a guy in behind me named Joe Thomas, who you know, was highly, highly touted number one in the nation at his position. And nobody really thought that he was going to live up to the hype. And the moment he stepped foot on campus, he did. I mean, it was just, it was apparent. And the worst part was, you know, I was really just kind of hoping he'd be dumber than a box of rocks and wouldn't be able to you know, grasp the playbook and I might be able to buy some time. But turns out he was really smart too and nice. And I just, yeah, I wanted to find a reason to hate him and I couldn't. And he ended up taking the job and he ended up going on to have a you know, a halt, literally a Hall of Fame career. He'll be a, you know, a first ballot Hall of Famer in the NFL and remains a good friend to this day. But that's really when I was disabused of my uh, dreams of, of going to the NFL. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's that like for you though? Because I'm curious, you know, when so much of your, of your identity through your childhood, through your high school years, and then through much of your college is wrapped around this idea of this is kind of who I am and this is where I'm going to go. And then all the signals seem to say like, yes, this is the path. When you finally, whatever it is that, you know, when, when the penny finally, finally drops and you're like, this actually is not going to happen, what's that like for you? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think my identity wasn't as tied up in football as some of the other guys on the team. I was a good student. I didn't take my studies as seriously as I should have while I was on campus, but I got great grades and was kind of known as the, the, the big brain on the team. And so, you know, it, and I was also fortunate, again, that my aspirations really began deflating pretty fairly early in my time at Wisconsin. So by the time I, I was all done, I was, you know, I was already on a, a, a glide slope to a different future. But I do, I did feel this sense of what next? I didn't, you know, it was 2005, it was the height of, you know, kind of the market craze, the real estate craze, you know, the economy was sizzling hot. I was graduating from a you know a really top end business school with great GPA. I had the whole Badger alumni network I could tap into, but the idea of just going off and wearing a suit just was not the identity that I wanted next. It wasn't going to be football. I knew that. So what was it going to be? And that in part gave me, you know, kind of started nudging me to explore what ended up being next, which was the military. Yeah, which is, is really interesting, I think, also, because, I mean, you, you shared that your grandpa actually was military, but there wasn't this sort of longstanding tradition of service in your family. Beyond him, 
in fact, it sounds like if anything, the expectation was either you're going to be a pro athlete or you're going to go straight into the business world and build something substantial. And yet you make this really interesting decision pretty soon after leaving saying, um, not just you know service, not just military service, but also the Marines, which I think is two different choices. You know, like one is I want to serve. And then two is when you start to say, well, well, you know, like, where's the place for me? Like, this is calling me. I'm curious a little, a little bit about that process for you. Yeah. You know, I, it was the height of the war. And so we're talking 2005, you know, we'd invaded Iraq two years prior, Afghanistan three years prior. And, you know, I, I had grown up again with that experience in Mauthausen, seeing Patton's army liberating that camp. Whenever I had thought growing up about joining the military, it was always about being one of those men that I'd seen in those photographs, one of those men riding in on the jeeps or the tanks that, uh, with a rifle in hand, liberating those people. So when at the height, you know, during the height of the war, I'm, I'm starting to explore this choice. You know, Pat Tillman ends up being tragically killed in Afghanistan, which, you know, Pat as a football player and his death, his sacrifice, of course, was something that I had followed, something that impacted me deeply and personally. It just didn't really even seem like there was any other option but to join the infantry. And so it was really the Army or the Marine Corps. And, you know, I guess I was just, uh, you know, uh, a glutton for punishment. I decided to join the Marine Corps just because it had that reputation for being the hardest and, and in some ways the best. And I never looked back. Yeah. When you make this decision and then um, you share it with your family, what's their response? You know, I, my mother found out by accident. Um, I was still in the process of signing up. I hadn't told anybody. And I had gone home uh, one weekend from campus. And this was back when Instant Messenger was a big deal on, on desktops. And I forgot to sign out of my Instant Messenger. And I had been chatting with a friend from high school and mentioned the decision. And my mom, you know, we all shared the same computer. She, she got on and saw this chat that said, yeah, I'm joining the Marine Corps. And so we went on a walk later that afternoon with my dog. And my mom just broke down. Like I could tell something was weird. And as we were walking, she just broke down and started crying. I'm like, mom, what's, what's wrong with you? It's, you know, are you joining the Marine Corps? And I was like, oh my God, this is not how I wanted you to find out. So she was, she was scared. I mean, she was terrified. Again, this is 2005. I mean, the wars are devolving. You know, sons and daughters are coming home in coffins. And I, here I am saying, I'm going to go enlist in the infantry after graduating from Wisconsin. I just didn't make any sense to her. But at the same time, I think when she, when she really thought about it, it made perfect sense because she really knew who I was and what was in my heart. Yeah. I mean, when you show up, because I can't imagine as a parent, you know, even understanding the power and uh, you know, of civil service and of service on that level, but also doing it you know, in the midst of a season in this country and in the world where you're smack in the middle of war, you know, like active conflict. Um, when you show up for a boot camp, um, what happens with um, your expectations of what this experience would start out as versus the reality of what it was? Um, you know, I think it was everything that I thought it was going to be. You know, it's it's a crazy, intense 13-week period. You know, the drill instructors are just messing with you nonstop, 24 hours a day, playing mind games with you, you know, physically uh, hazing you. Um, legal hazing. I want to put that in air quotes and make sure the Marine Corps doesn't get in trouble. Um, but it was it was interesting because I was older than most of the guys I went in with. I was you know four years older. Most of them are joining out of high school, so I was the rare exception there. Having played college sports, I was physically tougher, but also just mentally and emotionally tougher. You know, I I played for a really tough coach in college. Like he was demanding. He he called me every name under the sun that you could possibly imagine. And so I was able to really shrug off a lot of what the, the games were that the drill instructors were playing, but I saw a lot of young guys who couldn't, and they were just, they were just really wilting in front of, in the face of it. So a lot of the role I found myself playing was just taking guys aside in those quiet moments, which were really rare and just explaining to them like, listen, Hey, this is just a game. Just kind of grin and bear it. You'll get through this. They want to see if they can break you. Don't give them the pleasure, you know, and, and, you know, at the end of this, you're going to be a Marine. And so I found myself doing that a lot. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there was a sort of like the unofficial leadership role within a group of people in part because of just age and experience also like having been through this experience that let you understand sort of like the psychology of what was actually happening, like 
the ability to zoom the lens out a little bit? Well, it was both unofficial and official. I, you know, I got put into what's called the guide on the guide role of the platoon, which meant that I was really in charge of those 80 recruits for the whole time. And so it was actually a really early leadership lesson for me um, in really understanding that it wasn't just about, you know, running around and making sure that the guys were getting dressed on time and getting out the door on time and lining up appropriately. And, you know, with all the equipment they needed that that leadership role for me for those 80, you know, hopeful Marines was to ensure that they were, you know, emotionally taken care of as well as, you know, physically or mentally. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also because coming out of the experience that you had and understanding how important it is to have, you know, any number of people come together, be completely different people from totally different backgrounds, but unified around a goal, a mission, a vision, and devoted to each other in service of each other, not just the mission, but in service of each other. You know, it's, it's, like you said, it's kind of a rare experience to step into that with having never been in that before, but being able to sort of port your experience in college level athletics into that. Um, when you then you come out of boot camp, uh, you get deployed. I guess the first tour is in Iraq, mm-hmm. and then you come back after that. Was it a foregone conclusion that you would go back after that, or were you kind of what was going through your head? Yeah, there it, there was really no doubt that we were going to go back for a second tour. I still had at least eighteen months, maybe twenty four months left on my enlistment, and so you know, the Marine Corps is going to get theirs. <laughs> that's the one thing that's going to happen. They're going to get theirs, and so the real question, I think, as we were coming back from Iraq, was was our battalion going to get redeployed to Iraq, or were we going to get deployed to Afghanistan, and or even rotate on to what's called a, an expeditionary unit, where we'd go out on some Navy ships either in the Mediterranean or in the South Pacific, and nobody wanted to return to Iraq. You know, we just had a really grueling tour that we were there in 2007 as part of the surge. It was really bloody, violent tour. And I think it was at, it was also, it coincided with this, the reality, this understanding, at least for those of us who were looking at it objectively, that, you know, that really wasn't the war we wanted to be in, you know, as, as individual Marines or as a country, just, you know, that price that we were paying over there just really didn't seem worth it. And so I think a lot of us were still, you know, kind of chest thumping and, you know, thinking that we were invincible and we all wanted to go to Afghanistan. And we learned that we were, our battalion was going to Afghanistan while I was in sniper school, actually. We, we got the word. I was in the middle of, of sniper school. And the Afghan war had been deteriorating at the expense of the surge in Iraq. And so all of a sudden, the Department of Defense was scrambling to send reinforcements into Afghanistan. And they looked at our battalion, who had just, again, returned from Iraq, and we were supposed to be home for at least 12 months, according to DOD policy, like kind of this decompression period before rotating back over. And we were only home for six months because they just needed to throw somebody back into the fight. And so we basically turned right back around and went into Afghanistan. And you know, we were excited about that, like only young, dumb Marines can be excited about combat and hopeful that that war would feel a little bit more righteous than the, the Iraq one. I mean, this was the one that was truly in response to 9-11. This was the one where you really felt like you were, you know, out there, you know, getting the bad guys, the guys who were responsible, even though we knew in our heart that like, that's just not how it worked. It was never that simple and clean, but we had high expectations turning around and going to Afghanistan in 2008. Yeah. I mean, and so you go back there, now you go back there also in the role of a sniper, um, still in leadership. You end up in Helmand province, if I'm right, right? Yeah, that's right. Actually, I think you were there like 2008, 2009? 2008. Right. Um, yeah, I actually had a cousin who was a Marine who was deployed in Helm Province at that exact same time, did a tour there. But he came back, you know, um, he did two tours and um, he saw a lot of bad stuff and actually ended up in, a, in an um, ID tech. And uh, yeah, that was the end of his service when he finally came back from that. But, you know, when you when you go there and you're in the heat of something like this, and you move through it and you survive it and you come back. When you come back, you can't not come back different. And I'm curious for you, whether you were aware when you came back that you were a changed person and if so, how? Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, one of the things that people often say, or I've heard people say is, if you don't come back a changed, changed person, that's when you really have to worry about somebody. Um, yeah, I, I came back. I'm not sure I thought I was changed. I mean, I certainly felt like I'd earned a different perspective on the world. But shortly after returning, my parents and my sisters met me in 
California. And then I saw them again, I think near the holidays. And I don't remember specifically when it was, but you know, they each at a certain time pulled me aside and said, Jake, you're different. And they just kind of said it, you know, without judgment, just kind of matter of factly, like, what's going on with you? You're there's no joy, you don't laugh as much, you you're just distant, you're you're lacking emotion. And I think the first time I heard it, I dismissed it. I said, oh, you're wrong. You just, you know, I'm in a bad mood. Second time I heard it, you know, I thought, okay. Third time I'm like, okay, well, that's a pattern, <laughs> you know, and these are the people that know me best. And so I, I spent some time reflecting on that. And ultimately it was those conversations as well as some of the, the, the self-reflection that I went through that led me to understand that combat was changing me, that I was not the person that I used to be. And that's, that was understandable. And I was, I was, I was okay with that, but I also didn't want to further slip down that path. And I, I realized in that moment that war was becoming a little too easy. Combat was just becoming a thing that I did versus something that I had to do. And I realized I didn't have to do it and I didn't have to let war consume my life. And so I made the really tough choice, uh, you know, after Afghanistan to get out of the Marine Corps at the end of my enlistment. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's got to be so hard on so many different levels. Um, I imagine one of those is that, you know, there are probably people that you served with who made the same decision as you, but there were probably a whole bunch of people that you were really close with who didn't, who decided I'm going back in. And then simultaneously, you're like, you're like I'm not going with you. Mm -hmm. That's got to be really tough, just um, emotionally, sort of knowing that as having been so deeply close and bonded with people. Yeah, um, it was. And I, I don't know what it is about how you phrased that, but it's actually making me emotional right now. Um, it's um, everybody's got to make the choice when their war is over, you know? And um, it was really hard for me to make my choice. And some people that I cared about deeply weren't ready to walk away. And what's, what's, I think sometimes tragic is that that can create this gravitational pull that pulls men and women back into it, um, against, you know, often against their will. And I think about guys that after I got out who went back overseas and lost limbs and lost their lives. And, um, and I remember for a couple of years, um, you know, two or three years after I would get phone calls on occasion and, you know, it'd be somebody that I served with and, and I would always know what the call was going to be about. You know, it was somebody was dead or somebody just lost their legs. And, and I remember one was a guy, Colin Raz, uh, a Marine that I actually pulled into the sniper platoon, you know, and he, he later deployed as a sniper back into Afghanistan and stepped on a landmine and lost both his legs. And I thought to myself, man, if I hadn't, if I hadn't pulled that guy into the platoon, if I hadn't given him the shot at getting into this elite unit, would he have gone back? I don't know. But you know, now the price was his legs. And it just, it was so tragic for me to, to hear that. And, and whether it was rational or not, you become saddled with this guilt um, when you hear that. And, and that's, that's what's hard for a lot of guys is, is that guilt, that, that burden of wondering, always wondering if you did enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine, you know, it's almost like there are layers of stuff. <laughs> You know, from the, the trauma of actually being there to then the trauma of not being there. Yeah. Which I think is the part that people probably really who haven't served in that way would have the most trouble sort of transferring into and understanding. Um, yeah. But when you share it, I mean, in that one simple story, you know, it just becomes so real. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. So when you're you're back, you know, and you're you're sort of like saying to yourself, okay, so what's next? You know, it sounds like your mind kind of goes back to, well, I got an undergrad degree in business. Let me step back into that. I'll be an entrepreneur. I'll build something cool. And it sounds like you even started down that road, applying to Stanford. That didn't work out. But while you're sort of moving through this process and trying to figure out who am I now and what comes next, the earthquake happens in Haiti. Mm-hmm. That does something to you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it did. I think I was at a point in time where I finally thought I was ready to wear that suit that I didn't want to wear back when I was graduating from Wisconsin. And as you mentioned, I was applying to graduate schools. And when the Haiti earthquake happened, it was a couple of days after I got my rejection letter from Stanford. So I was, you know, I was upset. I was mad. First thing I really tried to shoot for the Star Sport Post Marine Corps, I failed at. Sitting there, I was watching that disaster unfold. And a couple of things happened. I think one, I'd always had a desire to serve, you know, going back to that story in Mauthausen and even a lot of the stuff that I did, you know, activities I was involved in in high school and in college, like I was always trying to get back to the community. And so I wanted to help. And then there was also this, this itch I wanted to scratch. It was a year since I'd been in Afghanistan, 60 days since I'd been out of the Marine Corps. And there was this realization that I was never going to do anything that um, consequential ever again in my life. And so all of a sudden, this, this watching this earthquake, I realized that this is maybe the moment and, you know, sprung into action there, gathered a, a handful of guys that I knew and that I could trust. And we got down to Haiti a couple of days after the earthquake and just started running around the city doing medical triage clinics in the hardest hit areas of Port-au-Prince. And that was when we had this realization, like any entrepreneur does, that it's really, it starts with the problem and then it's the solution that they kind of stumble upon. We realized that everything that we'd been taught in the Marine Corps was applicable in this, you know, this disaster zone or humanitarian crisis context. And so we, we set out really from that moment to build upon what we discovered in Haiti. And, and that's become Team Rubicon. 
Yeah. And I mean, you didn't, you know, when you make the decision to go down to Haiti also, you know, it sounds like first you're like, okay, so who's already going down there that I can help? And you're offering yourself up and people are saying, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you say you just grabbed a couple of guys and went down to Haiti, it wasn't actually that easy. You know, no. <laughs> you, you can't just say like, like call a couple of friends and say, let's catch a commercial flight down to an airport that doesn't exist and just start to walk around and help. It's yeah. much more involved than that. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. The, the airport was shut down. We, we made plans to uh, traverse through the Dominican Republic. You know, we made some, again, some kind of some rough plans to get from the Dominican capital to the Haitian border. And from there, it was really just kind of a figure it out. And the best map, the most updated map we had, and you know, beyond the Google Maps that we printed off before we left, was on my flight from Miami to the Dominican Republic. I ripped the back page out of a Wall Street Journal, which was a, a map of Port-au-Prince with you know icons kind of indicating where the death you know death was and the hospitals were. So that's just how that's how grassroots this was to begin with. But we kind of had this naive cocksure attitude that, well, we just came back from a combat zone. Of course, we could navigate, you know, a, a Caribbean nation off of the Florida coast. You know, how, how bad could that be? Well, it turns out it was really bad. <laughs> and I think we were, we were pretty foolish in our, in, our, in our own sense of self, an inflated sense of self. And we're pretty lucky that none of us died. But it was the birth of something that's proven to be pretty extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, because when you get there, it, it is effectively, it's a complete disaster zone, you know, probably similar in so many ways to um, to a war zone in terms of the devastation, the danger, the risk, the lack of infrastructure and support that you can access. And you just kind of go in and rely on the skills of process planning and execution. And it sounds like it was it was just immediately powerfully transferable to that um, experience. You um, You start out with, I think it was four guys, but that grows to eight. And then by the time you guys head out, which was, I think about three weeks, were you like at 50, 60 people? Yeah. I mean, how does that team grow when you're there? Well, we were, so bear in mind that, you know, that initial team of four, we, the funding that we received to go down there was all from friends and family. And so the one thing that we committed to early as we were stepping off to go to the Dominican Republic is, Hey, we're going to share with you exactly what we're doing on the ground every step of the way, because we feel obligated almost to be that transparent with you. And so you know, the, the organization was really born with this sense of radical transparency that we is a spirit that we still maintain today. And this was really kind of at the, the leading edge of social media and kind of what, viral stories would later become like now they're just a part of everyday life but at the time you know if you can think about it, it's 2010 this horrific earthquake just took place right off the coast of the united states and this team of former military veterans are running around you know off the grid outside of the conventional disaster response system it was it was a story that people wanted to tell and people were looking for and so you know it started with our own blog posts and the photos that we were uploading for, with our blackberries but then you know we were having for example, the the local ABC affiliate here in Los Angeles embedded with us for two days. And you know, so the whole LA market got visibility into the work that we were doing down there and just a lot of other things like that. And it just really started to snowball to the point where one night, maybe about a week in, um, there was this pounding on our compound wall. We were we were staying in this walled compound in the middle of the city. Um, security was was pretty tenuous. And I go up to the door. And as we're answering the door, we're hollering through it and we're asking, who is it? And, and this, this guy says, oh, it's Dr. So-and-so. I said, you know, who, who are you? He goes, I'm looking for Team Rubicon. And, you know, we weren't really taking ourselves too seriously at the time. So I said, well, why? So I saw it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a neurosurgeon from Oregon, from Portland. I saw you guys on the news. I wanted to come down. I brought two of my scrub nurses with me. And I opened the door. I look at the guy. I'm like, yo, man, like, we're not doing brain surgery down here. Can you sew? He's like, of course I can sew. I'm like, all right, get in. You know, you're on the team. And his two nurses, you know, came in after him. And it's just how it was. It was it was the Wild West. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, like you just start accumulating people who are just madly inspired as your story is getting shared. Team Rubicon, that's the name that you give to your group. At that point, though, it's almost more like, Okay, so it's a cool name. It's a ragtag group of people who know each other well and are just willing yeah. to do this incredible thing. But it wasn't, it sounds like it, at that moment in time, you're almost kind of thinking, this is really feeling amazing. We're doing something you know, powerful. 
but it's probably a one-off or maybe it's just something that happens here and there on the side. And we'll wrap up our work down here go back and we'll figure out our lives and get careers and jobs. And then maybe, you know, like every once in a while, we jump out and do something like this. Um, but that's not the trajectory of what happens. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we had no intention of starting a nonprofit organization on our way down there. And in fact, the only reason that we became incorporated as a nonprofit is a, a random guy, again, who was following our, our progress online, who had been a Marine and was now an attorney in Minnesota, called my dad in the middle of the day and said, hey, I'm following your son's exploits on the ground. And uh, he's going to be, you know, he's exposing himself to a tremendous amount of personal and financial liability by not being incorporated. I'm an attorney. I'll do it for you for free. So we're actually a Minnesota-based nonprofit organization for no other reason other than a guy named Pat Shriver up in Minneapolis called my dad and incorporated us. So yeah, we thought it was going to be a story that we would, you know, tell over beers, you know, in a game of one-upsmanship with other people. But we came back and we we were just inspired enough to want to continue to do it. You know, I I was starting grad school in the fall. I had six or seven months that I could tinker you know, tinker with this as a hobby. And so we continue to do it. We did some good work. We went to Chile after the tsunami there, South Sudan, Pakistan, you know, some, some hard areas. And in early 2011, um, we really had to take stock of what we were doing and what we wanted to do with it when my, uh, my sniper partner from the Marine Corps and uh, a, a guy that was one of the first people with us on the ground in Haiti, gentleman named Clay Hunt killed himself in Houston, Texas. And, you know, Clay's death was a tragedy for all the reasons that your listeners can imagine. But it it forced us to really take a, a pause and think about what we were doing with our lives and what we wanted to do with our lives. And, you know, of course, a part of that, a big part of that contemplation was Team Rubicon. And what was it? What was the opportunity? And was it something that we wanted to commit ourselves to kind of in service to the world and in some ways in honor of Clay? And so when the dust settled from, from his funeral, his, his memorial service, um, you know, that's what I chose to do. Yeah, I can't imagine the devastation of that. Um, you know, to sort of like refocus on this thing and say, okay, so my path in the world of business now, like that has to change. That kind of has to get cut short. And this thing has to grow into something else. Was this also the moment where you started to see, well, maybe this isn't just about service to people in disaster situations, but maybe this is also something that is in service to the vets, helping them, helping you, your friends, people that you know, people that you didn't yet know, figure out how to be okay when they came home, having left behind sense of belonging, a sense of you know, like fellowship, a sense of mission and purpose. Yeah, I think we, even early in Port-au-Prince, we knew that there was a really pretty powerful personal benefit to that service. You know, me personally, I, while on the ground in Port-au-Prince, had plenty of moments where, you know, the devastation that I was seeing, but the impact that I was having in it was helping me to process my wartime experiences. But I think Clay's death, really brought those things more sharply into focus and I think provided us a sense of urgency to them in a way that really propelled my effort, the efforts of our team, the efforts of those early volunteers. You know, at the end of the day, Team Rubicon is a disaster response organization. You know, we exist to serve those people who've been impacted by crisis and natural disasters. But we know that there's a powerful outcome personal outcome to those who are serving. And it's not, you don't have to be a veteran to, to gain, uh, you know, a, a higher sense of enlightenment or purpose, a more powerful purpose through service. But I think for veterans who are so closely tied to their mission when they're in uniform, who are so closely tied to one another in that shared vision of service, who are so closely tied into their identity of that, of that uniform, I think that they have a particularly large and dark void that they have to fill that Team Rubicon has certainly been a part of filling for them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, beyond the sense of mission and purpose um, and belonging, I remember reading research on how, especially when you're in battle for, for more than one tour, 
your brain literally becomes rewired. You know, the dopamine receptors require increasing levels of chemistry in order to get through each day. So your baseline becomes radically different. And when you come home, it doesn't automatically reset. You know, and when you don't get that just daily stimulus, you're hyper, hyper vigilant all day and you're, you know, your body's pumping chemistry that rather than returning to baseline, um, one of the reasons that, that I've seen is really offered that so many soldiers drop into a deep state of depression is because their brain actually requires a much higher level of these stimulating chemicals just to be baseline. And when Mm -hmm. they don't get it, you know, the serotonin, the dopamine goes away and it drops them into a dark place. It's, it's literally chemical. And what's interesting is that the experiences that you're providing also kind of speak to that as well. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. You know, we, we send these men and women into, you know, high stakes environments, you know, with, you know, that are austere, that are in some ways dangerous, some of course more dangerous than others. You know, you can't, it's hard to compare a, you know, a flood in Omaha to a cyclone in Mozambique, but you know, nonetheless, it's an austere environment that's resource constrained and the, you know, the stakes are high, you know, people are counting on you. Uh, you're in there with a the team, you have a series of objectives that you're pursuing. Like it, in, for all intents and purposes, it's the military without rifles and bad guys. And you know, that's a that's a really powerful salve for people to be able to to rub on those wounds of war, and it has been for me. It's been for many people that I'm close to, and like you said, it takes a long time for that brain to reset itself. And if we accept that the physiological changes that you outlined, if we accept that as as truth, and I certainly do, then we really have two choices, or really three choices. We can medicate our men and women, which I think we've proven to be woefully uh, bad at. We can leave them to their own devices, which means they're probably going to climb on a motorcycle and, and barrel down the 405 freeway at 120 miles an hour, weaving through traffic, which, you know, at a certain point in 2010, more Marines were lost to motorcycle accidents than combat. And it was because of combat. That's, you know, that was the correlation that many people didn't see. Or three, we give them a healthy outlet for that. And that could be snowboarding, that could be climbing Mount Everest, or it could be responding to a disaster. But those are really the three options that we have. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, when I'm thinking back to uh, my cousin who I mentioned before, when he actually came back, he ended up kind of redeploying to Afghanistan through a humanitarian organization, mm. you know, where he wasn't carrying weapons anymore. But I remember him sharing that one of the things that he really struggled with when he was there is he he wanted to genuinely be of service. He wanted to genuinely help the people that he met in communities and he couldn't but that never left him and that became just a huge source of suffering and pain Mm -hmm. and he wanted to go back not only because he was more comfortable in that setting but because he wanted to go back in a different context Mm -hmm. he wanted to go back in a context of genuine like doing the thing that he felt he wanted to do when he was there but he couldn't do yeah i think a lot of us who saw places like iraq and afghanistan through you know the barrel of a gun came to realize that a lot of those complex problems on the ground in places like Afghanistan can't be solved through a gun. Um, you can kill bad guys with a gun, but there's just going to be more bad guys. At a certain point, you have to break the cycle and you have to figure out what the root cause of extremist activity is and radicalization. And, and again, you know, there's a time and a place to carry a gun and go kill bad guys in foreign lands. I get it. I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist. But I'm also a realist, and I understand that for every dollar that we spend on our defense budget, we should be spending, you know, three dollars on education and, and global outreach um, through poverty eradication programs. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The 
all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, the other thing that just occurs to me is what you have built with Team Rubicon is effectively, it's an alternative. So you talk about your friend, you know, who you brought into, you know, the sniper role with you and how he went back and was injured. You know, like what you're creating with Team Rubicon, even though it wasn't the initial notion, is effectively... It is an alternative, you know, to saying, you know, like instead of going back because there's just a thing that I, I feel like I have to do, mm-hmm. you're giving them an alternative that is kind of safer for them, but to, to, to either step into like long-term or even transitional uh, while they're sort of like processing through uh, how to be, how to be okay in the world. Yeah, that was actually a topic that I, I really tried to explore both explicitly and implicitly in my book. The title of the book, even once a warrior begs the question, you know, what is a warrior? And if you're no longer a warrior, what are you now? And there was a, there's a chapter where I, I'm on a mission in the Philippines responding to a typhoon. And I, among some other things that I explore in this chapter, at one point I actually run into my old sniper platoon commander. Um, he's still in the Marine Corps. He's actually leading a sniper team down to the impact area to protect the airfield. And I'm about to send some Team Rubicon volunteers onto the same plane that he's about to board. I mean, it was like this ultimate small world moment. And he and I have a discussion for about, for about 30 minutes on the tarmac. And I just remember this, the conversation was really about, you know, what, what is a warrior? Like, and, and he, who had always only aspired to be a Marine in his life and who I think often wondered what could he possibly be if he was not a Marine, I really asked him to reflect on all of those things that were in his heart about service and about trying to serve a cause or a mission larger than himself and, and to understand that it didn't have to be in a uniform carrying a gun. You could, and that's noble, and that's a, there's nothing wrong with that. But there, are, there is an escape valve for you. And I think you're right. I think for, for many people, Team Rubicon has become that. Yeah. So Team Rubicon has grown into something astonishingly big and substantial. What started out as you and a handful of friends dropping down into Haiti for a handful of weeks has now grown into a global organization with something like, um, what, 140,000 volunteers? Yeah. Tell me more about the scale of what's happening now. 
Yeah, well, uh, it's big. <laughs> um, yeah, about 140,000 volunteers. We we operate an affiliate in Canada. You know, we've raised almost a quarter of a billion dollars over the last 10 years for the work that we do and responded to, I think, over 800 communities following disasters. And it's ranged from, you know, the earthquake in Haiti to the Syrian refugee crisis to Hurricane Sandy and Harvey and Maria and all of those those terrible storms and everything in between. and. You know, this year in 2020 has been a tremendous test for us. And COVID-19 was something that, of course, we didn't, nobody anticipated on the planet. And though Team Rubicon has continued to do medical work, and, and we've actually worked in infectious disease outbreaks, nothing like COVID-19, and certainly nothing here in the U.S. But I think what COVID-19 has proven is that our model, or rather our hypothesis, that we can make a more resilient America if we tap into you know, the strengths, the skills, the experiences of the 3 million men and women who've served since 9-11, has proven true. We've responded in over 300 communities this year alone, doing everything from medical decompression work in places like Navajo Nation, where we saw 3,000 COVID-positive patients, to opening and operating two dozen mobile testing clinics throughout California and the Western states, to surging 10,000 volunteers into food banks in nearly all 50 states across the country. It was, it was certainly a, you know, it was an opportunity for us to rise to the occasion and demonstrate to the world that we were onto something. And I think, you know, I think that it's going to fundamentally change the organization going forward. And I think that's a good thing because I think it's going to really catapult us into what the next evolution of this organization will be. Yeah. Do you have a sense for what that is? <laughs> well, bigger. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, at the end of the day, we're big, but we haven't even scratched the surface of potential for the organization. So we've got 140,000 volunteers, but as I mentioned, 3 million men and women have served since 9-11 alone. There's 18 million veterans of all wars in this country. You know, we might respond to 100, 150 natural disasters a year in the United States, but there's 400, 500 communities impacted by natural disasters annually. So that means there's hundreds that we're not reaching. So we have to do more. We have to do it better. We have to do it cheaper. We have to do it faster. We have to continue to innovate. That's one of the things that we're really known for. But we can't become complacent in any of those things. And at the end of the day, the world is becoming more complex. And COVID-19 isn't going to be the last unforeseen crisis that we encounter. And we've just got to be prepared for whatever the next one is. Yeah. I mean, it, when you think about all the the scope of people who can still potentially become involved in the organization um, who are vets, that's one thing. But you also mentioned that not everybody is a former vet. You know, like not everybody has has served in the military. You have people who you know like serve in um, you know, like police, fire, local civil service. I'm curious whether you also get people who just raise their hand and say like, I have never been involved in any way, shape, or form in any type of civil service, and this feels like a way a way in for me. Yeah, all the time. And it's inspiring. You know, we get school teachers and truck drivers and people who've never worn a uniform of any kind in their life who's, who have the courage to raise their hand and step into the arena alongside, you know, battle-hardened vets, firefighters, you know, grizzled uh, paramedics. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so from the beginning, we've never turned anyone away from the organization who simply wanted to serve their country or the world. And, you know, we've always committed to giving people those tools and the training that they need to be effective. And always indoctrinating them into that amazing culture that we've built along the way that's deeply rooted in the military. Which is kind of amazing to me also because when I think about that, the experience of just being a civilian and then stepping into that experience and then working side by side with people who may have been through all sorts of different things, the transference that's got to happen between people without intentionally saying, let me sit you down and teach you a lesson about my experience. But just because you're working side by side, you know, you're devoting yourself to something, you're, you're laboring together, conversation is going to happen. And I would imagine that the opportunity to leave both people, all people really changed and seen, it's got to be profound. It, it is. I mean, there's one of the things that's often spoken about these days is the civilian military divide. Uh, less than 1% of our, our nation serves. They're all volunteer. It's becoming an increasingly family affair, meaning that if your father served or your mother served, you're more likely to be, and, and, and that's and it's creating a caste system for our military, which is really unhealthy. And it leaves this division between those who serve and those who haven't. And that's really unhealthy for a republic uh, who invests as much money as we do in defense and who's a leader in, in, in global defense 
because it becomes really easy to send somebody else's sons and daughters off to war uh, with an interventionist global military policy. And, and that's not a good thing. And so we, we do see it. We see people uh, come together with a, a deeper understanding. And it, and it happens in both ways, right? So those who haven't served gain a, a deeper appreciation and understanding for what these men and women who have served have gone through. But those men and women who did serve, often one of the phenomena that's, that's developed through these forever wars that we're serving in right now is almost this, this sense of elitism. You know, I served and you didn't. You owe deference to me, you know, and, and it's, it's a very unhealthy development. And what these men and women learn is that, hey, you know, they're not the only citizens of this country. They're not the only ones who are willing to, you know, step, step into the breach and, and serve their country in a meaningful and impactful way. And that breaks down that barrier as well, which is, I think is really, really, really important to the health of the veteran population moving forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I mean, when we think about the time that we're in right now, too, you know, we are in a window of years where in this country, the division runs deep, uh, you know, on ideological lines, on political lines, deep on a level where, you know, politics has become identity politics, which is great if you want people to vote for you. And it's terrible if you actually want to someday have people be able to recognize each other's shared humanity, you know, mm -hmm. because it means you have to step out of an identity, which is brutally hard. But I wonder if you if you see in the context of what you're doing with Team Rubicon, people from all walks of life, all beliefs, all political backgrounds and persuasions coming together for this, you know, like to work side by side, shoulder to shoulder in service of strange, total strangers where nobody's asking, you know, like, oh, you know, like, are you this political affiliation? I'm not going to clear, you know, the tree that fell in, in this tornado in your yard because of it. I wonder if you also see it as this sort of like an interesting potential mechanism to allow people to see each other's humanity. Yeah, we do. One of the things, one of the sayings that we have at Team Rubicon is that if everybody acted every day like they do after a tornado or a hurricane, that we'd live in a truly special place. Because following a disaster, whether you're in Team Rubicon or just a member of that community, you, you find this, this well of compassion inside you, this willingness to cross the proverbial train tracks and help neighbors you've never met that we just don't otherwise see. Within Team Rubicon in particular, we, we see people from all walks of life. We see people that bridge the urban-rural divide. We see rich, the poor, Democrat, Republican, you know, all races, transgender, gay, queer, questioning, everything. I mean, every, every shade uh, of, of diversity. And people come together and they put it all aside. And it's, and it's really remarkable. It really is. It's inspiring. I will tell you that this last year has strained it. Not maybe on the missions themselves. I think everybody's still willing to swallow their their personal beliefs and 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 line up behind a mission. But man, I see it. I see the cracks forming on social media, where where volunteers from very dissimilar backgrounds would normally be cordial and accommodating online. I've seen vitriol uh, creep into that dialogue in a way that's just truly been disappointing. And so we were not immune to the divisive, vitriolic destructive politics of 2020. I hope we can find a way to navigate it going into 2021, because I do think, and this is being foolishly optimistic, but I do think that we can serve as a vehicle for, you know, uniting a divided country, but we have to have our own house in order first. And, and like I said, uh, this year proved to be a challenge for us. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, if everyone acted like they did after a disaster to be better world, I, I completely agree with that. Um, Having been in New York post 9-11, yeah. it was a different city for the six months after that. You know, there's an interesting full circle moment for you. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, Pat Tillman, and how he served as an inspiration for your decision to enter the military. And then I guess about a decade later, you end up actually uh, given the Pat Tillman Award. Mm -hmm. What was that moment like for you? Um, it was surreal, to be honest. As a former college football player, I always thought that I'd win an SB for something actually sports related. But I think that that moment, that award was, I don't know, like you said, it was just full circle. And it, it offered just this really amazing moment to reflect on the journey that I'd been on with some incredible people. 
And, you know, any award is a team award. And that one certainly was, but it held deep, special meaning for me just because of the role Pat Tillman had played in, in my decision to join. And it, and it happened to come right before the birth of my first daughter, which was just also in, in just a, a really powerful moment and experience for me because, you know, throughout my time in war, the, it seemed like the only time that I really paused to reflect on what was happening was these moments that intersected with with children who were just always so innocent and in so many ways so similar to you know the kids that you'd see walking down the street here in Iowa or New York City or anywhere else in America. It was just this powerful moment of reflection for me. Yeah. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out here in this container, good life project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? live a life for others. I think it's pretty simple. You know, what's a good life? I hope my daughter asks me that question someday because I think it'll be a pretty easy answer. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.